With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today on China Corner Office, a podcast powered by SubChina, the New York-based news and information platform that helps the West read China between the lines. I'm Chris Marquis, a professor at Cornell's Business School, and today we'll be featuring a recording of a live webinar that took place on August 11th with Ambassador Craig Allen, president of the U.S.-China Business Council, which represents over 250 companies doing business with China, many of them Fortune 500 firms. Our topic of discussion was the outlook for business between the U.S. and China for 2022 and beyond, based on findings from the annual USCBC member survey. Thanks so much for tuning in. While many of our shows focus on deep dives into the experiences of specific companies, in this show, we'll be discussing the broader trends that leading companies have been experiencing in their business with China over the past year. It was really an enlightening discussion with Craig, and their survey provides a lot of important insights into the current state of doing business in China. Unsurprisingly, U.S.-China tensions are the top concern for American companies, and geopolitical and political challenges are dampening optimism about China's business environment. However, in spite of this, the survey shows that the Chinese market remains highly important for American companies and that they're still doing quite well there. 95% of companies surveyed remain profitable in China, and 43% have plans to increase their resource commitments in China over the next year. We talked about the, a lot about this seeming paradox, how in the face of challenges and lack of optimism generally, American companies still continue to do quite well. One possible underlying reason is the variation in domestic-facing and internationally-focused propaganda, and how at times, while the state-controlled media is bashing U.S. investment, actually their policies are encouraging it. And one of the things that really stood out to me in how much variation is there is between U.S. industries in both policies and experience of companies. We may see things in the news about crackdowns on high-tech, and think the overall business situation is challenging. 
but Craig gave many examples of how nuanced the situation is across industries, also on topics such as nationalism of Chinese consumers and reactions to Xinjiang production. Finally, another important aspect of our discussion was Craig's detailed portrayal of how the Chinese government continues to skew the playing field to favor Chinese companies, and in many cases, such activities go against the principles of the WTO. This relates to well-known areas such as industrial policy, intellectual property, and standard setting, and also others that are not as well-known, such as government procurement. One may think it seems natural that governments would favor domestic companies in their procurement. But as Craig describes, not only is this in general against WTO principles, but in China, government procurement standards extend to state-owned enterprises. So such a policy has very large effect on market competition. Thanks so much for listening, everyone, and enjoy the show. Craig, welcome to China Corner Office. Thank you so much, Chris. Look forward to this conversation. Thank you. Super. So just as a first sort of starter question, Craig, if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to hear just some of the key takeaways, key headlines from the survey this year, and particularly things that may be different uh, from last year. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. And thank you for this opportunity. Let me highlight four trends, if you will. The first one is that the bilateral tensions are having an impact on American companies that are doing business in China. As many as 82% of our respondents have said that their business in China has been impacted. And that's a large number, but nearly everyone. The second trend I'd like to highlight is that the unlevel playing field in China has not been resolved. And indeed, in some cases, it appears that it's becoming more difficult to do business in China. Government procurement, standards, technology policy, and other issues as well. And we could talk about that, but those trends continue. The third trend is that China is really important for American companies. And almost all of our companies are in China for China. 94% are in China for China or for Asia. And they look at potential future Chinese growth as being strong over the foreseeable future. And so they are committed, remain committed to the China market. But the fourth takeaway is a continuation of a trend that we saw starting three years ago, three, four years ago, that there is reduced optimism. Companies are thinking about marginal investments. Companies are concerned about the future and in some cases adjusting their supply chains to to match the political reality that we see in front of us to ensure smooth operations over the short, medium and longer term. So those are the three main takeaways, four main takeaways. Yeah, really interesting. And I think that there's a little bit, in some ways, a tension between them. Both this sort of playing field appears to be getting more uneven, but yet the companies are still really committed. So I think that's one of the tensions that I'd love in a bit to to dig into. One of the things in this past year or so that has been in the news a lot and discussion is the tariffs and the phase one deal. I'd love to hear a little bit. So so what were the sort of responses about the tariffs? How are businesses reacting to those? The tariffs clearly have impacted manufacturers and retailers more than service companies, agricultural companies, or energy companies. 
And so the response in this survey doesn't pick them apart, but clearly manufacturers and small, medium-sized manufacturers have been most impacted by the tariffs. But the trade tensions overall are, which include tariffs, but also right. include a good number of other separate topics, have really impacted many of our companies. As many as 48% uh, of our companies, wow. nearly half have said that they've lost sales due to customer uncertainty of continued supply. 39% say that there is shifts uh, going on in their sourcing. As many as uh, a third, 33%, say that nationalism has impacted consumer decisions. And so there are many ways uh, by which the bilateral tension in the relationship is affecting American companies' ability to do business in China. And almost all of it is negative, but it's negative in different ways for different companies. And so hopefully the survey helps to tease that out uh, a little bit and provide a little bit more granular data on what exactly the problems are. Yeah, no, really, that's, I do think, one of the real contributions. And I think, yeah, it's really easy to paint things with a broad brush, but to really dig in to think about what kind of companies the nationalist sentiment is going to affect versus maybe some more sort of supply chain oriented effect. Right. So yeah, very, very interesting. Along the lines, actually, and this is a little bit outside the scope of, of the survey, but relates to this topic, I wanted to ask you, I know that the USCBC recently led a group of quite a few, maybe 50 plus different associations in a letter to Treasury Secretary Yellen and U.S. Trade Representative Tai about the phase one deal and China compliance. And it actually got a response from the USTR, which was a little snippy as one way to put it. I'd love to hear a little bit about the impetus behind that, why you thought this was the right time to send that, and then the USTR response. Sure, thank you. So the Biden administration has been in place for about seven months. And over that period, a review of China policy and trade policy has been underway. And there's a sense that review is coming to a conclusion. And we wanted to make sure that business views, which we feel are broader than business, it affects the whole economy, are incorporated in the policy review process. And that American farmers, workers, and ranchers, the one million American uh, workers whose jobs are predicated on exports to China, are taken into account as that review continues. As you note, some 30 other trade associations joined in the letter. Uh, we could have gotten 100. There is such broad. But we were very pleased that and confident that it represents the overall sense of U.S. business, U.S. exporters, and players in the economy. The response uh, from USTR, Commerce and State, has been positive. They welcome the reassertion of the importance of the phase one deal. They welcome the views uh, expressed, especially as those views try to take into account the overall posture of the Biden administration to focus on working families. We accept that fully. And the 
official response from USTR is the economy is doing very well right now anyway, and we hear you and we'll take this into account. Our reply to that is that fiscal policy is playing a large role in the economy, very loose monetary policy as well, but that's not gonna last forever. China's gonna be around, and the more that we could export, the more jobs that we could create from exporting and interaction with China, the better off we are over the longer term. And we don't wanna lose those jobs and that business to European or Japanese competitors. And so we're grateful for USCR Commerce and the White House's attention to our... Yeah, interesting. And yeah, along those lines of really continuing to try to build the commercial relationships, I want to go back to one of the things you mentioned in the opening discussion regarding this idea of an unlevel playing field that continues to exist and maybe even get worse. But just in the last few months with the CPC centenary, the pullback on IPOs, the sort of crackdowns on DD, the education companies. The Chinese government has been assertive in commercial spheres in a way that, at least to my knowledge, it seems very more pronounced in it than in the past. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what the survey says, but then also any other things you're hearing about how the business community is reacting to this. Thank you, Chris. I, I, I think that it's useful to start out by remembering that the economic policies, the regulatory changes in, that the Chinese government is introducing really is directed at issues internal to China in almost all cases. That, for example, the education, online education right. restrictions that you noted, really, they may have an impact on foreign players, but that's not, they're not directed at foreign players. And I would say that it's useful to remember that in almost all cases, the actions by the Chinese government are predicated on domestic concerns. That said, I do think that the survey causes or highlights a number of areas of concern in overall trade policy and investment policy that may disproportionately impact foreign companies. And there are a, a good number of details that the survey highlights. There is increased concern, for example, over the standard setting process and the fact that the statistics suggestion through the survey that it is becoming more difficult for American companies to take part in Chinese standards setting, okay. I think is a cause for concern. Also, another cause for concern is that almost all of our respondents, the great preponderance of our respondents, are suggesting that there is increased Chinese government support for state-owned enterprises and also for private companies. And up to 80-some percent of the respondents feel that this support given to Chinese players in the Chinese market but withheld from uh, foreign players in the Chinese market is having an impact on their business. And I think that this is a, the type of issue that if you were to speak to a Chinese invested company in America, they wouldn't say that the American government is giving a preference to American companies. So it's a little bit asymmetric here and uh, a concern that we need to watch. 
One area that we're seeing particular, that we're watching with a particular degree of interest is government procurement and SOE, state-owned enterprise procurement as well. There have been a good number of cases where American companies have been simply told, no need for you to participate in this procurement because this is only going to be domestic companies. And wow. that raises a lot of questions about the future of American companies in China. And we're hopeful that the Chinese Chinese government will agree that it's in their interest and in China's long-term interest to create a fair competitive environment in China, domestic market, where all companies, including private Chinese companies, American companies, European, Japanese companies, can all compete and bring out the best in each other, rather than setting up informal formal or informal barriers that might preference Chinese players. There is increasing concern, particularly on the technology side, that preferences are being given and that we hope will be addressed by Chinese regulators in the near term to ensure that they meet their WTO commitments, their commi commitments under RCEP, as well as maximize the economic of these purchases on behalf of the Chinese taxpayer who ultimately is paying the bill in the case of government procurement. We have a lot of work to do in this area. Yeah, really interesting nuance where I started out with these sort of visible in the media crackdowns, which actually might not be the key thing to look at, but some of these things like increasing SOE support, increasing standards where other international companies are not participating. That's really, as you mentioned, the things that are important to, to the U.S. firms and find them finding it a challenge. Uh, on the same, at the same time, you also read that there's an easing of some investments, standards. Chinese government is encouraging investments still. I'm curious, have you tried to get your, the report in front of the Chinese government? Have they taken a look at it to really get a good sense of what some of the challenges are for U.S. companies and where some of the opportunities might be? The report is translated and it is available on our website in China or here in the U.S. as well. And we welcome anyone to look at the report. It's good data in an area that needs good data. Um, the Chinese government has made some comments, and generally they reflect on the positive elements of the report that some 95% are, are profitable, very few have adjusted their supply chains, and only less than a handful, I believe it's three companies, have returned supply chains to the United States. They look at the part of the data that they like. We would prefer that both governments look at the part of the data that they don't like, and that articulate or represent or illuminate the real problems of businesses doing trading or investing in both countries. We are happy to do a deeper dives with the Chinese regulators mm -hmm. so that they understand the concerns of business and in the hope that they will find it in their enlightened self-interest to further open the door and to create a level uh, playing field so that the best product at the best price will more confidently those future tenders. And I think that there's some resonance for that. However, many of the concerns that we have at standards, technology policies, subsidies, state-owned enterprises, they are all also subjects of the phase two negotiations. Uh -huh. And so the Chinese government, while they recognize that there may be issues here, 
equally reflected in, by European and, and Japanese surveys, they are interested in addressing those in the context of bilateral or multilateral negotiations and not making unilateral moves that may disproportionately help foreign companies without getting that diplomatic return that they would prefer to see. And we're hopeful, therefore, that negotiations can continue in the not distant future. I think that is certainly on the minds of both sides, but the sooner the better and the more detailed the better. And we think that there is plenty of room uh, for incremental improvement on all these difficult issues. Not to resolve them fully, but incremental progress is important and should be embraced. Rather than demanding that we get to heaven immediately, let's right. just make progress in that direction. And while doing so, remove the tariffs and other barriers that bedevil companies and consumers going both ways. Yeah, it makes sense. Do you have any insight on continued negotiations, potential phase two, where we stand on that? We are talking to both sides. I think that the USTR and the White House and Department of Commerce will tell you that a review is underway and that that review will be completed in due course and that they will be ready at that time to begin to engage with the Chinese. And the Chinese, in the meantime, are happy to wait. They're not in a rush and will await the, to see the stance that the Biden administration eventually chooses to the trade negotiations economic relationship. That's not easy. It involves many different agencies in the U.S. government. And I am hopeful that they will be able to come to a consensus as to the end point that they hope to get to with the relationship and then eventually how to get there as soon as possible. Mm, this will not wait. Companies and workers are, are, are paying a price now. So the sooner the better to return to negotiations, discussions, preferably some compromise on the important issues that will lead to uh, better market access for foreign companies in China and a more competitive and robust Chinese economy in the medium and longer term. It's that outcome should be good for everyone. Can we get there or not is the question. Yeah. Another question, one question I'm going to take from the audience that has come in, which sort of relates to this, some attentions and difficulties at times that the U.S. companies are having as they're competing in China. And this relates to IP theft, trade secret issues. What are you seeing from your survey or hearing from your members on those issues? Are they you know, the same as before, getting better, getting worse. Any insights on current state of IP issues in China? Yeah, thank you. So this is in the survey. And I think that what you will, let me summarize. Uh, sure. What you will find is that as a result of the phase one agreement, there was a significant uptick in intellectual property protection, and we applaud the negotiators for that result. However, not all of those new regulations are fully in place yet. Some are still draft. Mm -hmm. 
and there has been some slow implementation in other areas. I think that we could take life sciences perhaps as an example. There has been improvements in intellectual property rights in the life sciences area. But at the same time, there's been volume-based procurement, which has effectively forced a lot of foreign suppliers out of the market. So that even though intellectual property rights have improved, the overall market positioning has not. And I think that that type of intellectual property right improvement, but a, a, a reduction in your market share is not exactly the results that, that we were looking for. And certainly the subsidies or other stimulus or preferential procurement given to Chinese competitors over foreign companies, if that does exist, is again would mitigate the benefits that we would have received through the intellectual property right, successful intellectual property right negotiations. And so there has been improvement, but over the last year, I think that the enthusiasm in this area has waned. The other problem is counterfeits seem to be continuing at about the same rate as they were previously. There does not seem to be a trail off in counterfeits that we can quantify. And until that happens, I, I think that companies remain worried. Yeah, 2019 was a year of great progress. 2020 was the implementation of that. 2021, the benefits have been received, but we re remain concerned about lack of continued progress, lack of some of these draft laws being put into final form, and the continuation of counterfeit flowing out of China in uh, a large and perhaps even greater numbers wow. than before. Yes, there has been progress. Yes, there are still complaints and concerns. And, and please, folks, continue to add your questions to the Q&A, and we'll address them as the topics come up. Uh, I want to go back a little bit to what we were talking about around sort of nationalist sentiment and, in some ways, discourse around anti-foreign competition, a protection of both in the consumer, Chinese population, and governments, or Chinese companies. It seems that the media is a big player in this relationship on both sides. In the U.S., I feel, as a U.S. resident, I have a sense of what is necessarily just for a domestic consumption, be it politicians or what's being written in the media. And you mentioned some of this nationalist discourse is very much locally oriented or about rallying domestic sentiment. But as companies, how can you sort, how can they tell actually in a nuanced way? On the one hand, the media in China is state controlled and they're bashing foreign companies, foreign investment. But then on the other hand, different areas of the Chinese government are encouraging foreign investment. As a a company doing business in China, how do you separate, I don't know if it's the wheat from the chaff is not necessarily the right metaphor. How, how do you really understand what the true situation is? Uh, it's complex because the market is so large. I would tend to break it down by industry where I think you really see patterns. And by and large, on the consumer side, those who companies that are consumer facing, 
they're doing fine. And the Chinese consumer welcomes American brands and is buying as they, as they always. And indeed, many of our consumer goods companies are doing very well in the China market. I would say when you look at general agriculture and food, that is going very well. And exports from the United States have increased uh, significantly and food brands are very bullish about China. When you look at energy also, there's a lot of optimism that be it for hydrocarbons or ethanol or coal, that the China has the largest market in the world and that the Chinese are purchasing and we welcome that. We have a lot of hydrocarbons and other energy products to sell. So really not a problem. I would say in most industrials, it is not a problem. American brands are very well regarded across the Chinese industrial setting, and many of them are deeply entrenched in China with sometimes dozens of factories across China, and their um, technology, their quality, their innovation is excellent, and they rely on global R&D excellence. So generally not a problem. It is really in the high-tech area that we're seeing some concerns, and there the concerns are informed by a reliance on or an increase in export control actions, prosecutions, sanctions, and other, other types of economic coercion that bring Chinese buyers to question uh, the reliability of an American product. And that is not necessarily a nationalist response, but perhaps a rational business response when we can't be certain that export controls won't change or that a particular product area might not be included in the future. And so there has been at least some degree of Chinese suppliers specking out American software or, or parts or components or chemicals or whatever of future generations of products due to concerns about the reliability of American companies as they face both the US government and the Chinese government <laughs> who are somewhat at odds with each other. The situation is complex and mostly in the tech area that, that this tension has become most difficult to navigate. But I wouldn't say it is a nationalism or a patriotism, mm. an emotional thing. I would say that it's pretty rational okay. and pretty predicated on the regulatory threats or the regulatory arbitrage that companies feel that they must do to be able to do business in both countries. And Chinese companies doing business in the U.S. face some of the similar issues, <laughs> certainly for them to get a visa to come to the U.S. is right. much harder now. And I regret that Chinese uh, investment in the U.S. has really fallen off as a result of some of this uncertainty, which is clearly strongly felt going both ways across the Pacific. Yeah, interesting. I'd love to talk a little bit more about the the travel issues and what your companies are saying about that in a second. But let me quickly follow up on, well, first of all, I just want to say one of the things that I've definitely taken from your discussion so far is while things are complex, actually, as a starting point, thinking about it industry by industry is a really useful 
heuristic to unpack where some of the tensions may be. And I think that's maybe yeah, one of the real values of, of the work that you're doing. Along those lines, I wanted to ask, you mentioned one of the segments that is not having issues necessarily is consumer goods. And at least in the media in the U.S., you hear about some of these sensitive issues like Xinjiang and cotton and Hong Kong. And as a result of that, there has been some backlash against some U.S. and international brands. And, and in some ways, the companies are caught in the, in the middle of this. I see one of the questions on your survey was whether companies have felt pressured to make or not statements about sensitive political issues in the U.S.-China relationship. I was wondering what the respondents said on that issue. Yeah, thank you, Chris. So some 45% uh, percent of our members have said that they have felt no pressure, but many have felt some pressure. And the numbers there are increasing. And I think that the, one of the interesting things about the survey is that many of our members feel that both governments are suggesting that or putting pressure on them for statements. And I have to remind American companies in particular that they need to be careful here that the Foreign Agents Registration Act would require an American company to register as a foreign agent if they make comments officially on behalf of or at the request of Chinese government or a Chinese wow. entity. And that's probably a legal issue that most, if not all, companies want to stay out of. And so at least American companies are precluded from making statements on behalf of uh, the Chinese government. Mm -hmm. So. At least thus far, American companies have avoided heavy sanction by the media or social in China over the Xinjiang issue. However, I would not suggest that the coast is clear and that all is great. Within the Congress, it is highly likely that the Xinjiang Forced Labor Prevention Act is going to pass at some point, and that will put forth into U.S. law a requirement that companies prove that there is no forced labor within their supply chain, which is something that is difficult to do. It's often difficult to prove a negative. And so this issue has not gone away, and it is an issue that does impact on sovereign feelings and nationalistic feelings in China, and it's uh, something that we need to watch very carefully. And I think many companies, not only American, but European as well, Japanese as well, are concerned about being caught up in a conflict of laws type mm -hmm. situation, whereby if they follow a, not if, when they do follow American company law, can they be sanctioned for that in either Hong Kong or on mainland? That concern is real. We need to watch how that develops. Let's hope that cooler heads uh, prevail. I was uh, concerned when the blocking sanctions were also incorporated into Hong Kong law, and that, that raises yet more concerns about Hong Kong and the one country, two systems structure that exists. And so while American companies have not yet been targets like H&M clearly was mm -hmm. of, of Sweden, we certainly don't rule it out 
and we must remain uh, vigilant at all times so as to be fully compliant in laws with both country, in both countries and also that we engage in the highest ethical business practices that are out there and that we're able to prove that we're doing so. And if we're able to accomplish that, we should be fine. Right. Let, let me, I, I had noted something you said previously about travel restrictions, and I'd like to just hear your reflections and from some of the members. This is something you mentioned the context of investment coming to the U.S. and difficulty getting visas. It seems with the outbreaks and really aggressive containment of the Delta variant in China, who knows when people will be able to travel to China again. Can you say a little bit about what your members are saying about how travel restrictions are impacting their business and if they have any prognostic prognostication as to when things might open up or when they might actually be able to travel to China more frequently? Yeah, thank you, Chris. So this is in the survey and some 57% have canceled international events or conferences in China. Some 44% canceled international exchange programs and, and, and training. Some 30% have delayed or canceled significant business decisions because executives were not able to meet. Some 23% have lost significant business opportunities because the executives were not able to get there. And some 13% have said that they've increased local hires. So I think that those statistics are, are useful, but very incomplete. I would also note that it's been much more difficult for headquarters to communicate with Chinese employees in a candid manner. A lot of the most candid and important discussions have taken place over dinners or in uh, conference rooms in Beijing or Shanghai in more private settings. And those conversations are much more difficult now. And I, I have to be honest, I feel for the CFO or the CHRO or the chief information officer of an American company in China, usually a Chinese national, who has to, who might not know the customs and the American law as well as they should, as well as they would like. And that creates a, a degree there of uncertainty and a little bit of a drifting apart, potentially. It's always been hard uh, to manage subsidiaries in China, and now it's even more difficult. And I dare say that the same thing uh, is true for Chinese companies in America. How do they manage their uh, investments here? when they're not able to travel. So I think that this is a symmetric problem. And that gives me some hope that there will be a symmetric relaxation. I wish I had a crystal ball where I could tell you on what date people would be able to move, but I don't have that or it's very cloudy. And the indicators are not positive at the current time. So I think that we have to continue to be creative and continue to lean in to those flexible ad hoc tools that we're all using. Unfortunately, we need the face-to-face, -face, but we're not going to get it for a while. Yeah, that's, that's my sense as well. Although I must say from the education industry where I'm situated, it's been great. Many of my students, I'm getting emails from them. They've arrived back on campus. And at least in that aspect, there, there does appear to be some international travel happening, which I think this fall, the education situation will be much better. Yeah, but Chris, let's recognize that's an exception, not a rule. Right. Oh, exactly. Definitely. Definitely. One, I think that you've 
painted a very interesting industry by industry picture, some positive, some maybe less than positive. But what I want to return to now is I think it was the last sort of takeaway that you listed, or I'm sorry, the second to last is the third one that actually uh, the Americans, for the most part, are still very positive about doing business in China. Actually, num one of the findings from your study is that 40% of the companies actually plan to increase their resource commitments to China over the next year. Can you say a little bit about while there are these tensions, there are these negative aspects that we've hit on, many companies are still seeing that it makes a lot of sense to continue to do business in China and even increase that business as well? I think that there is a general recognition among our companies and economists around the world that China is going to contribute in an outsized way to global growth. The IMF has suggested that as much as 30% of global growth over the next 10 years will come out of China. And I would concur with those estimates. I, I, I think it's baked in when you baked into the demographics and to the industrial development. And so American companies want a piece of that. And China has done a very good job at, over the last 40 years, going up the supply chain, going up the food chain and becoming more and more sophisticated producers of manufacturing and uh, services, food products across the board. And we want to compete. How can an American company say that they are a global leader unless they are a leader in China? China is probably about 20% of the global market, global GDP right now. But that'll increase, and one cannot abandon that installed base or the growth. The base or the flow are both right. important. So American companies are going to continue to compete fiercely in the China market uh, to uh, capture as much of that growth as possible and to contribute to Chinese economic uh, development. I think American companies have had a profoundly positive effect on economic uh, development in China thus far. And my hope is that is just a beginning and that we will be able to return to trend, if you will. And it's not only the trend of the last 40 years, I would say it's a trend of the last 250 years of economic integration between the two countries. We are uh, deeply integrated, interdependent, synergistic, and we want to play as large a role in the Chinese economy as possible for the benefit of all. And we are hopeful that we will be welcome to do by both governments. And we look at that as a important barometer or indicator of the overall relationship and a stabilizer in what is otherwise a little bit tense at the current time. Right. Yeah, def definitely a, a way to think about the, the positives and something to build on that to hopefully resolve some of the other tensions. I'm going to go for one of the audience questions, at least as, the, as it's labeled, it's from your, uh, not sister organization necessarily, but a similar organization to you in Canada. The Canada-China Business Council has a very interesting question here. Uh, it is, you've done this survey for many years now. Actually, we know, you know, Craig and I actually are having a conversation before. We started 25 years, this survey's been ongoing. So from that, what has most surprised you or changed the most in this year's result versus prior year results? 
Yeah, I, I am surprised that we're taking a step back in standards development and that, that it is apparent that it is becoming more difficult for foreign companies to participate in Chinese standards making bodies. And that this is an area that where the Chinese private sector and public sector, sector closely interact and where at least my interpretation of China's WTO requirements, commitments, are that they will allow foreign companies fulsome participation in their standards uh, setting process. And I find it unfortunate that more companies are complaining or worried about that as uh, Chinese, the Chinese companies and Chinese government work intimately to press forward Chinese standards. And this is not only an issue that is relevant to the domestic China market, but it's an issue relevant to the global market. If to the extent possible, we should all be reliant on global standards. And if individual countries are going to be in a kind of a protectionist, mercantilistic manner, going to be have public-private dialogue to, for the purpose not of consumer safety or efficacy or um, efficiency, but rather for nationalistic purposes, going to manipulate or try to manipulate the global standards regime, then that would be a major cause of concern. And I think that especially when we see that tendency, along with a significant increase in sub subsidies to develop technologies, that we need to think about the technologies of the future, the innovation ecosystem, and how that might be impacted by, by Chinese government, Chinese corporate coordination on what should be an open international process. And China is big enough that it could disproportionately impact global standards, which we want to keep as global as possible, reflecting global needs rather than the needs of, of one particular. Yeah, very interesting. In regards to this discussion of standards, you also mentioned a number, some things about protectionism, and there were some things earlier in the discussion as well. And this actually leads to one of our audience questions regarding technology procurement. And the questioner says maybe the Chinese government is is restricting procurement because the U.S. is doing the same thing to Chinese companies, a tit-for-tat type of reaction. I'm curious your response to that, but then also how does procurement work or such protectionist issues play out in the U.S. Uh, versus China? Maybe it'd be useful for the listeners to hear just a little bit of contrast about how the things work in the U.S. versus China. Um, so China is not a member of the WTO government procurement agreement. So the Chinese government can do, can act outside of that agreement because they are not members of. But they have, when we negotiated the WTO some 24 years ago now, at that time, the Chinese side said that they would join the government procurement agreement, quote unquote, as soon as possible. And we all thought that would be three weeks or three months at most. And 24 years later, the Chinese government is still looking at joining the government procurement agreement. So the question of government procurement becomes difficult because many state-owned enterprises in China 
will also follow government procurement guidelines. Mm -hmm. And they will claim that that is because there are national security reasons for that. But I think that it's reasonable to be skeptical about that. When I was a trade negotiator, we found a high-level security procurement going on in one of the provinces over what was a marriage registration office. Highly, hardly uh, a national security interest. But I raise that because it's an example of a, albeit an egregious example, of a Chinese pseudo-government, local government entity that demands the highest level of security, even though it really doesn't need it, thereby precluding foreign companies' participation in their their supply chain. And that same story, we get it for state-owned enterprises, but China has a very large percentage of procurements are are not governmental, but state-owned enterprise. And when state-owned enterprises follow government procurement guidelines, that is a violation of WTO principles, certainly. State-owned enterprises should act in a commercial manner and lacking clear national security needs should certainly buy from the best, lowest quality bidder. And therefore, we are discouraged when state-owned enterprises tell us not to bid because we're not going to accept that procurement. So this is a sensitive area and one that we watch closely and one where we will argue that state-owned enterprises must be competitively neutral and follow, buy the best product at the best price always, lacking any very specific national security restriction. And we find that we're moving away from that ideal rather than moving towards it. And it's a cause of concern. Yeah, interesting. The state-owned enterprise point, I think, really shows how this is actually a tremendously big issue. We have about one minute left, and I'd love to ask Lee, as a final question, just ask you to take out your cloudy crystal ball and look into the future a little bit. One of the findings from from the study actually was that there's reduced optimism about the future among U.S. businesses. Can you just reflect a little bit about what that might mean five, ten years out? So this is where uh, a general survey is, can sometimes not be so helpful because we're, we have the data here would be very broad across consumer goods, ag, manufacturing, mm. high tech, et cetera. And I think that the, where we do, do find some pessimism about the market, it's really limited uh, to a relatively small group of, or subgroup of, of companies. And they are watching both the market and the, the regulatory regulators in both countries. It is also clear that the Chinese market is becoming extremely competitive in all elements and that you have Chinese, mostly private sector, but also public, competitors in almost every sector that are fiercely eating away at profit margins that may exist. So this is a fiercely competitive market where uh, competitive advantage can erode very quickly Mm. and where you have to really work hard to maintain your competitive position. So there's a lot going on here about the competitive nature of it, the regulatory problems that we face, the nationalism that we face, and also the export controls 
and tech controls, as well as visa controls. There are many challenges to be managed as we try to continue our businesses in perpetuity. Great. Well, thank you for that sort of closing note. Again, I think that a theme for me has been the nuance across industries and also variation between domestic versus international discourse and policies. Overall, just want to thank you so much, Craig. The listeners that are still with us, please take a look at the survey. The link is in the chat. Also, I think in the follow-up email will be a link to the survey. It's chock full of very interesting insights at a nuanced level about what, how business is thinking about China. So thank you all very much for joining us on China Corner Office. Thank you. Thank you.